today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The Ontario government has made a lot of changes in the past 24 hours. Uh, I was surprised, very surprised, when all of a sudden I got a, a, a notification from Global News saying, the CEO of Hydro One has just retired and the board has just resigned. Excuse me? Wow. Uh, Here's what Premier Doug Ford had to say about all of this. I'm happy to say today the CEO and the board of Hydro One, they're gone, they're done. So again, and and just to add to all of this, uh, the press release I read said that uh, they had retired, uh, the board had resigned. It it, it didn't really say, they're done, (laughs) but... Uh, and, and, and were we expecting this? Because the $6 million man was supposed to cost $12 million to fire. Anyway, let's bring in Steve Applin, publisher of Emission Track, monitor CO2 carbon dioxide emissions from energy use, and is with us now. Uh, say, Steve, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. What was your take on how all this went down? I'm not surprised that it happened. I'm not surprised that uh, the now former CEO of Hydro One is, is, is the former CEO of Hydro One. Uh, but it, the, the, the way that it, it happened, the, the, the mass sort of uh, resignation and retirement, I thought that was, uh, I thought that was a little bit uh, interesting. And I thought that the, the, um, the question of what uh, the severance that, you know, which was a source of a lot of controversy, you and I have discussed this, um, that uh, I, I guess we don't know. It, it hasn't all shaken out, but, uh, but I'm surprised at the, at the way that it went down. Uh, especially when at a scrum earlier on, and he talked about bringing back uh, the ledge and, and talking about the three main things, which was the cancellation of the wind farm and, and uh, electric vehicles, cap and trade, I guess. Uh, and, oh, the other one was the York strike, ending the York strike. Those were sort of the three main points uh, that they wanted to bring uh, this back. So he was asked by this by reporters earlier on in the day and just kind of downplayed it all and didn't really. So uh, it was it was wild that afternoon have something like this happen. Yeah, I, I wonder if it, if if he had some sort of uh, forewarning that that something like others, whether negotiations were happening in the background to to make it you know to give a graceful exit to the to the CEO and the board. Uh, I think that that might have been that that might have been it, and uh, that might be the reason for his sort of uh, his his uh, amb- ambiguous response at the press conference. But uh, he now can claim that uh, something has happened that he said would happen, and uh, I guess it's a win for him. So I guess the big question here, uh, Steve, is how did this happen? Was this a forced resignation? Do you think a forced retirement? I think that the uh, the CEO of Hydro One and the board read the writing on the wall they they listened to what uh, uh they thought they said uh you, you have to re- remember right after the election green on was canceled uh the uh, the home retrofit program uh cap and trade they announced was was gone immediately they put the cancellation of that wind farm which you mentioned into one of their priorities i guess they were pretty worked up about that I think that the CEO probably and the board looked at the writing on the wall and said, "Well, we're either going to get fired, or we should, you know, that we can we can jump, or we can be pushed." So I, I think that's uh, they they took the decision. 
this pretty much, uh, I guess, the straw that broke the camel's back was when they voted themselves raises, and uh, both Kathleen, as the Globe and Mail stated, both Kathleen Wynne and Doug Ford weren't happy about that. Uh, nonetheless, 92% went on to vote in favor of this which I, I just found astounding because the government owns 47%, but they abstained from the vote. Do we know to this day why the heck they did that? I don't, yeah, I, I don't know if we, like, uh, to, to be a fly on the wall would be pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. But I think that, that it, just re- it just worked into the general narrative that, that built up over the last few years that uh, when it comes to electricity in the province, uh, it's turned into a get-rich-quick playground for people. So I'm not saying that that's what, what the situation was at Hydro One. You know, no. there's, there's executive compensation and all that kind of stuff. But it fed into that But again, narrative. what you have to ask yourself, Steve, is what kind of relationship is going on between the board and the CEO of Hydro One and the provincial government that they don't even show up for the dang vote and then claim, oh my goodness, I'm disappointed with how they voted. Well, why didn't you show up with your majority and have a say? Exactly. Why... why you know, I, I so does that? I guess. Of, I guess where I'm going with this, Steve, does that? And I'm and I'm 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 you know I'm not putting words in your mouth here, but it looks to me that the, the uh, Hydro One board was appeared to be as corrupt as the government was for these sorts of things to go on without even knowing what you know, t- or at least putting up any sort of resistance to it. Yeah, well, it's it just speaks to 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 a, a culture of entitlement. Let's yeah. just call it that in the electric all, all across the electricity sector uh, that. That there's uh, those who are on the inside can uh, can make a lot of money. Yeah, it's, it's it's just kind of kind of boils down to that. Like I said, it's a very simplistic way to put it. But I mean, this is this is how the public, especially the people you know, especially Hydro One customers who are paying absolutely skyrocketing electricity bills. This is how they're looking at it, and I guess that's why uh, Doug Ford said the things that he said on the election trail, and actually even before the campaign began. And, uh, and so now we've got the situation today. Well, and here's what I find astounding, and maybe you can help me with this, too. Um, the opposition is saying firing this guy is not going to bring down your electricity rate one iota, meaning that the only concern here is his salary and not this attitude or change in culture that we've been just talking about. How yeah. is that not going to bring down rates? We're not talking about the guy's uh, remuneration. We're talking about the culture and the effect it has on the economy. Yeah, that's a, well. I mean, that's a, that's an excellent question because there's there's another aspect of this. The opposition also didn't like the cancellation of that wind farm, and that wind farm is getting to what we're talking about, uh, driving down rates. Uh, I think that's a pretty strong signal, and the, and the government was quite adamant about that one particular wind power project, and there are really good reasons behind that. And I think that that is a kind of a harbinger, the, the, the cancellation of that project and the cancellation of Green On and the scrapping of cap-and-trade, et cetera, et cetera, are a harbinger of a fairly wholesale realignment of the electricity sector away from this ideology that, that we saw under the Liberals, and towards, uh, hopefully, in, in my in, in my hope is towards a little bit more rationality when it comes to electricity planning and pricing and that kind of stuff, because that seemed to have been abandoned uh, under the former government, unfortunately. So uh, the, for, the, for the opposition, sorry, sorry to cut you off, I just want to finish the thought, that the opposition is against the cancellation of the, of the uh, wind project, saying this is the gas plant scandal all over again. It's not the gas plant scandal all over again. It's, it's similar in that it's the cancellation for political reasons of a, of a contract, but it's, 
uh, it's uh, of a certain type of contract that I don't think the NDP themselves would have done. And I think that, you know, in, in opposing this, they're saying we should have a baked-in 20-year contract for overpriced, unreliable power. I think that the that, that's kind of how this is all shaking out. And I think that the current government is going to do a, take a really hard look at that, you know, all across that sector. Because we've got that, we've got... What uh, about pricing. the... What about the, uh, the the chatter that this is going to cost a hundred million dollars to kill this this one contract, this one wind farm contract alone? Uh, it it I uh, the that's it's all speculation at this point. But I mean, uh, we we may have to pay something. Uh, there's a really good question about why was this rushed through to uh, a notice to proceed. Uh, you know, during the election campaign and after the election, when it was it should have been known at the IESO, which which administers this stuff, um, that the current government is not friendly to that kind of technology, uh, and and that they're going to be taking really decisive steps, or they say they're going to be taking decisive steps to reduce the cost of electricity, and this is one of the aspects of of high electricity costs. Uh, there's a there's I I think that the current government is right to be a little bit ticked off about how that was handled in the in the final days. It almost seemed like that project was pushed forward to to uh, a certain contractual status before it could be the plug could be pulled on it. And if that is the case, uh, then uh, I'll I'd be interested in hearing the explanation for why that happened. So how do they fire the C or how does this all happen, whether he retires, whatever happened? How, how does this all happen without having to pay him this uh, astronomical severance that everyone was talking about before the election? Excellent question. If, if the, it could be that the, that the board has capitulated and said, well, we can be wrapped up in a legal dispute for the next, you know, for the foreseeable future over, over severance. Uh, when perhaps they've gotten a legal opinion that said uh, this is a this is a fightable issue, meaning that the government can fight it, there's grounds to fight it, and if there is, if there are, maybe it's just not worth it. Maybe it's just uh, let's just uh, take our stuff and go home, and 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 uh, call it a career. Uh, but that's just my speculation. Who knows? It could be that they are lawyering up right now as you and I are speaking, and they're going to come back and say, well, you now we were we were pushed out. It's just it's just odd because I look back at the uh, I look back at, at similar cases like this where somebody has resigned and then claimed uh, wrongful dismissal only to lose. If if, if yeah, exactly, if, can you do that? Can you I mean yeah. uh, you know put out an official press release like that and then all of a sudden change your tune? Yeah, well that that's just it. Those things figure into into a legal ruling. So uh, it's it, it appears that that they're that they are leaving and, and they're not going to put up a big fight over this something that they that would be enormously unpopular uh, uh, against them. Uh, it, it it could well be that they're uh, you know voluntary resigning just means that uh, they're walking away from this. Uh, and as you said, this probably has more to do with the fact that uh, the game has changed now. It's completely different. It's completely different. Like I said, it, it, there is a under the you know for the last fifteen years a culture of entitlement has developed within that sector. And I believe the yeah. auditor general actually said this this system was easy to game. It was easy to take advantage of. Yes, yes, and even if you didn't game the system, let's say you did everything completely above board and by the rules as they were written down, it's just it was so weighted in favor of anything that and anybody who put a put the words green and sustainable into their funding proposal, 
you know, A, that they got funding, that they're entitled to funding for that purpose, for that reason, and B, they're entitled to make a good profit. Uh, in, in rational electricity sector planning, that is not the case. You have, to, you have to make a good case. But those criteria, the criteria for delivering power at cost, seem to have been waived under, under various measures under the former regime. So I think that uh, there's, if, if that is, you know, the, the moves that the Ford government has taken since getting elected have just signaled to everybody in that sector, and I know people in that sector, I speak with them every day, and as a matter of fact, I'm at, I'm at meetings every day about this. Uh, the game has changed. Yeah, Th- yeah. That, that is over. Yeah. So um, whether that's good for the province, or I, you know, I, I, I'll... What about the fallout, Steve? How much, what about the fallout of killing cap-and-trade in these programs, the electric car, what have you, uh, subsidies, what have you? What is the cost of this? What is the fallout? I mean, I guess you can't put a cost on it at this point, but will there be a massive fallout? Or is it you can't keep throwing good money after bad when everybody says it's unsustainable? Yes. Well, it's, it's the latter situation. The, the, the problem is... There were there were contracts signed uh, uh, when 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 that when that uh, ideology was not prevailing when the former ideology was was in the ascendancy. So, uh, what on what basis are these? If if the current government decides to revisit a lot of these fit contracts, uh, for example, you know, eighty cents solar is not sustainable under any criteria uh, under any criterion except for the one under the former government. Uh, can you negotiate these things down, and what cost will come of that? I believe that there's a sound legal basis for the current government to negotiate a lot of these really high-priced contracts downward. And if the proponents of those contracts um, um, suffer some sort of uh, financial um, um, uh you know, uh, downside as a result yeah. of that. Well, this is, you know, it comes down to caveat vendor instead of caveat emptor, which is buyer beware, caveat emptor or caveat vendor, let the seller beware. You're selling into a system that has been, that is favored by a, a government that has been elected. And we have elections in this province. Another government could come in that doesn't agree with it. Well, that has happened. So it's uh, really interesting to see It'll be very interesting to Mm. see what happens going forward. Steve Applin has been with us, publisher of Emission Track, which monitors CO2, carbon dioxide emissions from energy use. Steve, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me again. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Fascinating um, times watching Donald Trump um, at uh, the NATO summit. And how he plays uh, countries and allies and and enemies uh, against each other and and, and seemingly taking the sides of enemies and and kicking around allies, so to speak. And uh, it was was an interesting discussion yesterday. And uh, many have said that, you know, Donald Trump spends too much time supporting uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia. Uh, The other day he said... Uh, Donald Trump alluded to the fact that Germany is being held captive by Russia uh, because of a pipeline that is going to go through and supply uh, energy to Germany from Russia. Uh, This bypasses a lot of uh, Eastern European countries. uh, And, of course, uh, Donald was selling the idea that uh, you guys are a slave now to, 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 uh, to Russia. Uh, which, of course, you could just see the look on the people around Trump and, and, and their body language that they weren't happy with the statement. However, 
as the day progressed, Christia Freeland spoke up and said she has concerns over this pipeline as well. And then the, the uh, prime minister also reiterate, reiterated what Christia Freeland said. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, former liberal MP and consumer affairs critic, analyst, gasbuddy.com, and also just generally energy specialist. He's with us. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, nice to be here again, Scott. So uh, does, the, the, does the prime minister feel the same way about this pipeline between Russia and Germany that Donald Trump does? Well, I, apparently, his uh, certainly his foreign minister has uh, raised reservations now that it's out on the table. I think a lot of people are starting to take a second look at this. Uh, many of us would not have given this much consideration, but it's an important pipeline for Germany. Uh, fully, uh, nearly 40% of all of its uh, needs, uh, thermal needs, will be met by, uh, by this uh, natural gas pipeline. Uh, and, of course, of course, the concern is uh, it's one thing to get your product from Russia. It's quite another thing. Uh, that it may come, uh, you know, sort of indirectly with, uh, you know, with a disproportionate, uh, you know, attempt at uh, maybe perhaps changing one of the most important allies of NATO's position on certain things. Uh, we think here, of course, of how Russia has used that natural gas pipeline to pretty much, uh, uh, you know, influence uh, and, uh, and, and retaliate against uh, countries like Ukraine, uh, threaten other countries who have natural gas coming from Gazprom and others, uh, so it is more than just uh, supplying a market in a critical need with cleaner energy as uh, Germany m- moves away from an attempt to try to uh, stop uh, the proliferation of its coal mm-hmm. generation as well as nuclear. So the options, I think, uh, become a little bit more uh, in focus when one thinks, for instance, of uh, the importance of a country like Germany saying or not saying things about things like, for instance, the invasion and takeover of Crimea. Um, it's not... Uh, uh, outside of the realm of uh, of discussion, but uh, I think many of us were surprised at the muted response, uh, among other things, by Germany. Uh, could this have had anything to do with the fact that it's going to rely more heavily and more intensely on Russia for a good amount of its energy? Well, I mean, what the heck here, Dan? Uh, Trump loves Russia. Why shouldn't Germany? <laughs> Let's not go down that road. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we can get an investigation going there as well and go on and on and on, and I can deny, deny, deny. So no, what I, is the significance yeah. of this pipeline to Germany? Some have said that it's only a very small portion of their needs. Yeah, no, it's about 30% to 40%. And, it, uh, of course, once a pipeline is in, you can use it for more things than simply you know uh, heating homes. It's used uh, uh, high-end for styrenes. It's used uh, for uh, industrial purposes. Uh, to uh, to transform uh, you know raw materials into higher value added goods uh, you know ethanes and pentanes and all these other byproducts of and even condensates of of natural gas uh, are have extreme value for anybody who has it and can use it to uh, process more uh, more uh, upscaled products and Germany of course is no stranger to uh, to industrialization and to uh, being able to uh, provide. Uh, higher value added to the rest of the world. So uh, it needs this as an important element in its economy. And, of course, it is uh, unfortunately extremely dependent, given that it does not have its own natural gas reserves on Russia, to be able to access uh, fuel for its, uh, for its emerging and strengthening industrial needs. So what do you think the, the point was of Donald Trump bringing this up now? You had said earlier that this was largely going unnoticed. Nobody was really even talking about this. Why would Donald Trump focus on this now? 
I don't know. I, you know, there's the bull in China shop uh, approach that uh, the president is well known for taking. Uh, knock everything over, uh, you know, get things talking, get people talking about it. Is this Clearly a distraction, do you think? Well, I don't know if it was a distraction as much as it was uh, pinpointing things that I think the world were, was really not taking into consideration. And it's, it's clear that with Canada uh, signaling uh, today that it also has concerns about this pipeline, that it wasn't just sort of something he did on a lark. It actually raised something that many of us may not have given much thought to up until he actually raised it. So I'm not, you know, give credit where credit is due. We may not like the way in which he's approaching it, but he certainly is raising things that I think in the long run have legitimacy and and, and questions that must be asked. You bring up a valid point there. How is this being received? How is this information? Because, of course, if you can see the body language in the room there when this discussion was going on, it was, oh, my goodness. Uh, That being said, uh, how is this being received? I mean, is there any credibility here? Well, I think there's a bigger issue here, and that's the question of, you know, wanting to have cleaner energy, wanting to move to uh, less reliance on intense, uh, high-emissions fossil fuels. And, you know, natural gas is a fossil fuel, but it is by far and away less invasive uh, and, and certainly doesn't have the emissions that other things mm-hmm. like coal might have and certainly doesn't have the concern about what you do with spent rods uh, and other things with nuclear. So there is, uh, you know, perhaps a, a sharpening of the focus here in, in allowing us to sort of have that discussion about uh, if we need natural gas, who's providing it and what are the underlying indirect conditions for obtaining it? And can that gas once that natural gas takes a foothold and you need it and your, your economy becomes ultimately dependent on it, uh, since you can't produce your own, uh, what if they decide to turn off the taps and, as it were, OPEC you? So, you know, Vladimir Putin must be loving this because, once again, he's creating, um, uh, he, he's creating distrust, distrust among what, what were once allies. Uh, is this further splintering NATO countries? Is this further splintering the West? Well, I think he's certainly using his uh, his prowess, his energy uh, to to achieve just that. I mean, proximity to Europe is pretty significant. Uh, uh, it has untapped reserves of natural gas. It's not like Canada can send over products. We can't even get a pipeline built in this country without uh, uh, you know um, opposition. And LNG is still a long way away. That being, of course, where you can take natural gas, compress it, turn it into liquid form, ship it halfway around the world, and then deliver it. Uh, there's no doubt that natural gas is the uh, fuel of the future. And uh, beyond anything else, uh, it is going to continue to uh, become more important for most economies, especially in circumstances where you see, as you do now, uh, the need for transition from more intense emissions to less intense uh, fuels that uh, provide less, uh, you know, less emissions. And that, that I think, has a huge political and economic consequences for all countries that are dependent on countries like uh, Russia, which has a reputation for, uh, well, not exactly being uh, great when it comes to either human rights or, for that matter, uh, when it uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, proliferation of its own ideologies and uh, and perspectives. So what is the solution here, Dan? How do you balance an open market, selling your stuff, buying your stuff, what, ha- what have you, and, and have control as well, or worry you're giving up too much control? Yeah, I think you have to take all these things into consideration. And up until yesterday, I don't think many, including those in Germany, may have given much thought uh, to the uh, consequence of uh, you know, doing a, a deal with uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, yes, there is the economic side, of it, which is beneficial to both sides. But, you know, are there strings attached or are there strings attached that you're not aware of right now, which could have the 
unintended effect of uh, uh, creating, uh, you know, serious political ramifications for a country that is as important uh, to uh, Europe's stability and to the world's stability as Germany, both economically and politically. So uh, is this making a deal with the devil? Uh, well, I think it's, it certainly wasn't planned to be that way, but I think it's probably created an environment that uh, will cause Germany to think uh, twice about proceeding. And I think in that context, uh, the, there may be other... Germany may pursue other avenues, but again, it's it's up against the wall. Uh, you have a very strong uh, environmental component in Germany that uh, doesn't want coal, doesn't want fossil fuels, that is eschewing diesel, gasoline, everything else. So, what's your what's the next bet? What's your next step? Well, unless it's natural gas, you really haven't got many steps uh, or other alternatives. And I think I think that's what's at play here. So, uh, what happens next? Where does this go from here? That's a good question. I think uh, it will open up uh, everyone's wide, eyes wide open to the reality that deals are being done. So does uh, Donald Trump look good here, or is this just another distraction? I think he looks a lot better than uh, he he did when he first raised it. I think people thought he was being a bit of a uh, a bit of a dirt disturber, and yeah. it turns out he wasn't. And I think that's probably one of the strengths uh, that comes out of this, is that by raising the question, uh, there are some out there who've taken the time including our own government, to uh, potentially suggest that there is uh, grounds for concern. And that grounds for concern has much greater ramifications for the world order or the security of the world in an environment where you have a country that is uh, a wanton uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, abuser of, uh, of territorial rights among uh, nations, Crimea being the best example. You just walk in, grab what you think is yours, take half of uh, Ukraine. You don't like your political dissidents, poison them. I mean, uh, the, this, this may not be the old uh, USSR, but it certainly has all the makings of what we uh, once considered a country that is uh, very much an oligarchy. So how would Russia, how would Putin react to what Trump has said in regard to Germany being captive to Russia? Or is it, you know, everybody's accusing uh, Trump and, and Putin of having a bromance, so this makes it look like, well, you know, I'm being tough on Russia, too. Yeah, well, I think it sets the stage for their meeting, doesn't it? I mean, they're going to be meeting face-to-face, and uh, they're being a hold part. I think he's going to say what he has to say and uh, present uh, uh, Putin with in advance with his concerns, and uh, I'm sure Putin will do the same. Uh, but it's not by accident that we've, uh, we've punted Russia from uh, the G8, now the G7. Uh, we have grave concerns about its conduct, its behavior, uh, and we know that, uh, uh, you know, uh, beware of those gear, you know, bearing gifts in this case, if you can get a deal with Russia, uh, the question is, uh, what's the cost and uh, what's the, uh, you know, what's the uh, what's the real cost? What's the what's the game here? And I think that's where uh, more of what uh, Trump has done here has opened up, I think, uh, rightly, uh, the issue of doing uh, a deal with someone who is not very trustworthy, certainly on a on a macroeconomic. Is that level. not kind of hypocritical for Trump, though? Why is that? Well, just in the sense that, you know, one minute he's saying, you know, I think we should bring him back into the G8. Now, all of a sudden, he's saying, what the heck are you doing making a deal with Russia? Yeah, well, I can't figure that guy out, but I do know that uh, the stance that he's taken, and this may have been the correct one, pointing out that someone else is more hmm. directly... Uh, I don't know of the United States being directly connected or having to depend on Russia for anything. Um, I mean, I think certainly in terms of world stability, what happened 30 years ago uh, with the... Uh, you know, with the glass and with uh, the changes that took place in Russia to convert it, uh, went a long way to... So in other words, you're saying there's no reason for doing this 
does that again come back to that conspiracy theory that Russia has something on Trump? Oh, I don't know. I mean, that's if that I think that happened, we would have seen it by now. But again, yeah. I don't have right. uh, access to uh, the latest intel from uh, secret services around the world. I mean, there's probably a lot of information out there on both sides uh, involving more than just Trump, involving everybody. Hmm. Uh, who knows how far the tentacles have gone? I mean, we've 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 asked our ambassador, or Russian ambassador, to leave. Uh, it's not unusual that we do this when we have concerns about security or breach of protocols. Uh, and it, it's you know, it's not unusual uh, for a country like the United States or Canada to raise concerns about alliances with other countries, uh, while at the same time, uh, you know, entertaining, uh, you know, uh, concerns about uh, such moves being hypocritical. That's what we call diplomacy. Is it, have we got to the point where everyone is out for themselves now, Dan, or were they always that way? Now it's just out in the open. I think this thing has to be seen as a one-off. I mean, there's many things that Trump is going to say and do that uh, would be seen as, uh, you know, part of a bigger picture. I don't think it is. I think this is uh, one area where he's just picked on and said this is advice and intelligence that was given to him by the State Department. Normally it's done behind scenes or, you know, uh, there's a what we call a pull-aside. Uh, or you discuss these matters on the margins. Those are kind of uh, diplomatic, techie uh, language. But the reality here is that I think uh, all Trump has done is made it more federal, made it more uh, pedestrian, and said, uh, here's what it is. Uh, you know, you, you put yourself in a serious situation of uh, dependency, potentially, uh, Germany. Be aware that we're aware and that the world is now aware. Wow. Fascinating times. Uh, can Trudeau, uh, well, not so much Freeland, but can Trudeau talk about pipelines when, as you said, he's got his own pipeline issue back here? <laughs> I think you'd be uh, the first one to say if he could uh, wave a magic wand to build a pipe pipeline uh, across Alaska and into uh, Russia and right across the other way if he could to uh, uh, maybe supplement uh, what uh, what Russia wants to sell to uh, to Europe. If there was, a, if there was a way of doing it, uh, we've got plenty to offer, but Unfortunately, I think Europe is conflicted. It's going to have to make some choices. It, it really has become, you know, enraptured and captured by the idea of climate change. And uh, this is part and parcel of the reason why the government has no choice, especially a coalition that uh, Merkel is trying to handle. Uh, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. And it certainly doesn't help that Trump pointed out the obvious, uh, or for, for many in the diplomatic circles was obvious, but for many uh, ordinary folks was not uh, readily uh, seen. Does Donald Trump look good in this scenario once everyone's digested what, what was said yesterday? Well, I think in the context of Canada reaffirming what he said, it's, of course, it makes sense. That how, does the wor- how does the world react to Canada reaffirming that? I think it's uh, for us in Canada to recognize that uh, we, we think it's a problem as well. We've just passed the Magnitsky Bill designed to, uh, you know, to identify the human rights and trade relations that we have with Russia. So we're not big fans of them to begin with. Uh, but more importantly, I think, uh, and that was done, by the way, unanimously, very rare that our own parliament can come together on anything. Uh, but I think it's, it really emphasizes that however the message got out and whoever the messenger was, they got it damn right. So what will Germany's reaction be to this, especially 24, 48 hours later? Muted, uh, but I also think that it might be an opportunity to strengthen Merkel's hand to push back on uh, those uh, on the environmental side who are purists saying we have to go down this road we can't shut down coal plants we can't we we have obligations under you know the paris climate treaty uh you know at the same time she can present that the world now sees uh the potential for uh you know for uh you know weakness in uh, german foreign policy and i think that's going to be her strength to be able to say 
hey, look, I've gone as far as I could with you on this, folks, but that sooner or later you're going to have to make a decision. Uh, do we want to, uh, you know, do we want to get in bed and be reliant on uh, a nation uh, and, and a regime that has uh, a reputation which precedes it and which could put, it, put us in peril with respect to our, our partners? Ironically, while we think of Trump as an isolationist, his revelation here has been anything but. Uh, the, Germany already consumes gas from Russia. Is this just the amount, how, the quantity, how, mu- how much more dependent they would be on them? Hard to say. I mean, Germany is dependent. Whether we like it or not, it has no choice. Um, it's, it's now in a situation where, uh, you know, it's, it, it has to uh, continue its industrial output by somehow uh, getting access to a supply of energy, which it currently doesn't have, and for which its current supply mix of energy uh, is not uh, popular or, or acceptable. So uh, I think this is going to sort of right the ship and uh, put things back in perspective and will be a very big debate going forward in, uh, in German politics. Does this change politics in Canada at all with regard to our pipeline, especially so. with the price yeah. of oil shooting up? Yeah, I don't think so, but I do acknowledge and, and, and accept that in Canada we have certainly you know, uh, a decision to be made about uh, uh, where we want our oil to come from. And uh, although we are not, there's no you know, real attachment of our energy you know, to the politics of another country, uh, the reality is that we are not as dependent. Push comes to shove, if we only built our, our, our pipelines, we would be uh, you know, head by, by a long shot. But it does, I think, raise the, the potential for an indirect concern that if you uh, are reliant on other people for uh, the energy that you need to, uh, to maintain your standard of living, uh, you may want to be very careful about uh, going down the road of, uh, of mixing pipelines that could otherwise make you independent. Dan McTaggart, your independence. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP, consumer affair uh, and consumer affairs critic, analyst, gasbuddy.com. Dan, as always, great conversation. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Throne speech went down today a little earlier on, and there's actually going to be like a 15 gun salute out at the legislature, which. Um, they weren't sure it was going to go on, but it is going to go ahead uh, simply because or went ahead simply because uh, there's a threat in downtown Toronto of some sort. And uh, we're still trying to find out more on that. So when we do, we'll certainly pass on uh, the information. That being said, uh, another throne speech and, uh, of course, a brand new government. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to The Washington Times. He is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Okay, before we get to this, I have to ask you your impression of yesterday when basically Ford came out and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to outline three things. This is the reason we're going back to the ledge uh, mm. this summer, the York strike, uh, killing the cap and trade, and I'm missing one. What was the other one? Um, uh, oh, the wind, uh, the wind, wind, wind turbine uh, the, yeah, farm. In Prince Edward County, yeah. And he right. was asked about, well, were you going to fire the $6 million man or what? And he stayed mum on the whole thing. He didn't mm-hmm. say anything. It wasn't a priority. These were the three things we're looking for. And then lo and behold, lo and behold later in the afternoon, we get a memo uh, that says that, or a press release rather, that says that the CEO of Hydro One is retiring and the board is resigning. What's yep. your take on all of this? Uh, and how do we how do we get rid of him without paying that big twelve million dollar severance that everyone was speaking of before the election? 
Well, I think it's fair when Doug Ford comes out and says promises made, promises kept, because this is another one. He basically said he was going to get rid of the $6 million man, so to speak, which is Mayo Schmidt, who was the, or it will soon be the uh, former head of Hydro One, and he's going to get rid of the board as well. Now, the only thing here is that uh, when Mr. Ford actually spoke yesterday, he stated that it would not cost uh, the Ontario taxpayers anything further, including this discussion of a $10 million severance that was being bandied about for a while, which occurred when basically Mr. Schmidt and many of the board of directors of Hydro One realized that their jobs were at stake because it became very clear to them that the Ontario Liberals were going to lose the provincial election. So they obviously tried to put something in place as security and to get some more money on the way out the door. In this case, even though Mr. Ford said that there will be no cost at all, some places have reported, and I think correctly, that there will at least be some sort of a $400,000 severance in mind. So yeah. it's not nothing, but that's certainly a lot less than the discussed $10 million. Now, some people said, well, that's fine, but are we going to find out later on down the road a few months later that they were sort of given the money quietly under the door in a different set of circumstances? I would certainly hope not, because it would make the whole thing look pretty preposterous right now. It wouldn't be the first time a government had done something, but I'd like to think at least to start with, because really... Mr. Ford is only in his first week as Ontario Premier officially, that if he actually was able to arrange it where he got rid of everybody that he wanted to and didn't cost the taxpayers as much as basically we were being discussed beforehand, which is $10 million versus $400,000, I don't think the Ontario taxpayers would have much to complain about if that, in the end, the latter amount, is all that we have to pay to get rid of people who, quite frankly, I don't think we're doing a very good job at all with Hydro One. I understand that the 400000 was part of a retirement package, and... and uh, um uh, Doug Ford said that there is zero severance at the press conference. So in other right. words, he'll be paid out what any normal person would have been paid out, but there's nothing uh, extravagant. Mm-hmm. How, yes. how do you do that? Because again, this guy is a high-powered executive to just walk out the door with $400,000. How all of a sudden do we go from having to pay him millions to just paying him a normal amount? Well, since I wasn't a fly on the wall, I don't exactly know what happened, but the only thing I can answer is this. You're absolutely right that Mr. Schmidt would obviously try to not only ensure that he got the best deal possible for himself when he first took the job, he's also going to ensure that he has the best deal possible when he leaves the job at the same time. Mm -hmm. And you're right, obviously he has high-priced lawyers or a strong legal team behind him, and that would obviously benefit his case. At the same time, let's not be silly about it. I mean, every political party has supporters who are in the legal perfection, and in the Ontario PCs have many high-priced and powerful lawyers who support their cause as well. And my guess is that probably the Doug Ford and his senior advisors went to their legal advisors, spoke to them, asked for ways that they could possibly get out of this deal without... In other words, Mr. or well, we won't attribute Mr. Schmidt to. So we'll just basically say Hydro One in particular getting this huge amount of severance pay out of it, including ten million dollars. How do we basically rectify the situation where the Ontario taxpayers are only going to have to spend, as you say, this little tiny portion for retirement, which is what anybody else in his position would get, yeah. and not have to be on the uh, the you know not holding the purse, so to speak, with everything else. 
My guess is that they found a way. I don't know exactly, unfortunately. Do you think we'll ever know? Do you think we'll ever know? It's a good question. You know, look, I come from a family of lawyers. My father was a lawyer. My late grandfather was a lawyer. I toyed with the profession, but I ultimately didn't go to it. So I know that obviously behind the scenes when lawyers speak, sometimes they're able to reach some sort of an agreement or at least come to some sort of an arrangement that makes sense. And it may just simply be a case here that the Ontario PC legal team was stronger in its arguments than, quite frankly, Hydro One's legal team behind the scenes. Will we ever find out? I guess it's possible. I mean, as I said, one scenario where we might find out is if somehow in dribs and drabbles it comes out months or years later. That's one possibility. But if nothing ever comes out, I guess it is possible that eventually some member of the former board or or soon-to-be former board of Hydro One could speak unless it's written somewhere in their contract, their exit agreement, that they're not allowed to speak in front of the press. Or someone will just, unfortunately, in this day and age, and you and I are used to this, they'll just leak it out. Mm. <laughs> they'll get the paper, they'll yeah. toss it out, and it's, you know, it's illegal, it's wrong-headed, it's, it's disgraceful when you do it. But there are a lot of people who are like that. You know, that's what we technically call whistleblowers and others who just throw it out there to obviously gauge public reaction and see how the, see what people basically think about something like that. So the answer is I'd say it's 50-50 in this day and age. But years ago, probably we would never hear about it. Uh, will there be further litigation, you think, or because the fact that they released a statement saying we re- uh, we've resigned or in the case of the CEO retired, it's over? I guess I, I would say this. Um, it's always possible there could be further litigation if, <clears throat> on the side of Mr. Schmidt and Hydro One, they feel that they got a bum deal. In other words, that they were browbeaten into taking a certain position, they signed something that they were not necessarily comfortable with, and they may, you know, they may say, make up a story or tell the truth in some, in some way, shape, or form, saying that, well, they were promised it at a later date. And this could go back into the courts and be discussed, well, for months or for years, depending on how long it runs. I think it's possible. At the same time, though, you would assume that whatever legal team or legal advisors the Ontario PC government has would ensure that they have an ironclad deal to get rid of the people that they don't want around and to ensure that they won't come running back and try to countersue them in some particular way, shape, or form. So uh, until I actually look at the agreement or the arrangement that was signed between the two parties, it's just mere speculation on my part. But I would think that unless there is something really dangling there in whatever the exit agreement was and whatever they agreed to ultimately at the end, I'd be surprised if there was further litigation, but we also live in a litigious society, so anything is possible. The tipping point seemed to be when uh, the, the board and such uh, voted themselves a raise way back when. And yes. the Globe and Mail pointed out that 92% of the, uh, although Doug Ford and Premier Wynn both disagreed with it, 92% of the board accepted it, but they failed to say that 47% of the, the shares are controlled by the government and yeah. they, they abstained from the vote. Uh, why would they, to this day, have abstained from that vote which started this mess? And could it be the reason these people are exiting now so quietly is there's more dirt on them than we know? 
there probably is more dirt on them than we know. I mean, I, I guess that things will come out over time. But again, I mean, I hate speculating too, too much because obviously I'm not involved in the day-to-day process of Hydro One, as most pundits are and most radio hosts like yourself are not. We're just not there. We don't see all the papers. We don't see the books. And we don't exactly know what's there. So we can only guess. But yes, it, there's a good chance that it could be much dirtier than we ever thought or Simply put, we could just basically have seen the entire story, so to speak, and it looked pretty bad to begin with Mm. because, you know, when you actually have people who sign near the end of a government's run an agreement to get more money on the way out the door, I mean, that looks pretty bad in itself. Did they realize that, you know what, the culture's changed, the game is over here, there's nothing here for us? They may have, I think so. Sometimes you have to admit defeat. It's, it's not fun and it's not pleasurable, but I think when you realize you're in a situation where you just can't win, and that happens everywhere, politics, business, and daily life, um, sometimes you just try to get the best deal you possibly can, or at least in terms of Hydro One, they try to get way more than that, and ultimately they didn't succeed. To your other point that you mentioned earlier, why did, for example, the Ontario Liberal government, who I think is the, the main uh, problem in this issue, why did they stay out of this thing completely? It's a good question. I'm sure Kathleen Wynne, and during her years of retirement, because I assume she's not coming back to politics, may be asking herself that in private, that if she had intervened, it wouldn't have necessarily saved her government, but it would have at least been an issue that she could have dealt with, mitigated some of the damage, and moved on to, well, quite frankly, other pitfalls that they had to deal with. This just sort of was an extra cherry or on top of the Sunday, so to speak, that was very easy for not just the Ontario PCs, but also Andrea Horvath and the Ontario NDP to go after on a regular basis because it was just like a carrot. It was just dangling out there, and it was easy to, to attack. And, you know, when you really look at it, I mean, hindsight is always twenty twenty. When you think about what Kathleen Wynne did and could have done better, I think, quite frankly, a lot of people, including Ms. Wynne and her senior staffers and even her junior staffers, may look at this issue and say, you know what, we should have, we should have done something, we should have fought against it, and we should have made our argument more clearly or and perhaps more even, Or even show up for the dang vote. Well, I mean, come on. And again, I, I, you know, I'm the commentator, so I'll say it. To me, it appeared like the two were in bed together. Why yeah. would you just sit back and let this happen? And, you know, it's interesting when we hear people say in opposition that, um, you know, firing the CEO of Hydro One won't save anything, won't save us anything on our electricity bills. Mm-hmm. How can you say that? And, you know, maybe his wage won't. But how can you how can you point to this and say that the attitude is certainly needs to change? The only way, the only reasoning I have, and obviously I can't enter the former liberal government's minds, is they probably felt that they had made the commitment to sell off 53% of Ontario Hydro. They had to stand behind their 47%, so to speak. They didn't perceive themselves as being the majority shareholder, even though in terms of total assets, they still are. This province still is. And I think also they probably wanted to wash their hands of a dirty situation. They realized how terrible this was. 
they realized that, you know, by the board making these sorts of decisions, especially with the taxpayers' money, it could really hit them. So they just simply didn't show up to sort of say, well, we don't recognize this as being part of the process and we were not involved. But that's what hit them in the end. That's what wow. bit them in the butt, so to speak, is the fact that they weren't involved. Boy, did it ever. Uh, will the new template be better? I mean, many have said we've talked mm-hmm. about this situation and how what, what a complex issue it is. Will the new template be better? Well, look, the starting point was to get rid of the board of directors and to get rid of Mr. Schmidt. So that has been accomplished. And by August, what is it, August 15th, they're all gone. That's it. It's all done. So now the next part to sort of clean the slate is to bring in a new board of directors, a new president, and hopefully a proper direction for Hydro One. Look, the Ontario government realizes, even the new PC government as it stands, that that 53% that was sold off is gone. They can't claim it. They can't recollect it. It's finished. It's wiped out. It's now in other people's hands. However, if Doug Ford is willing to use his 47% total amount of assets in Hydro One to his advantage and act like the majority shareholder that the former Premier Kathleen Wynne should have acted like in the first place, then I think that could actually at least lead it down a much better road. As well, when Mr. Ford actually tackles hydro rates and starts reducing them where people can actually feel in their pocketbooks, meaning that, you know, that their wallets are going to be fatter, not thinner, so to speak, I think that's actually going to be a great way for people to sort of realize that everything is finally working for them. One of his big lines during the campaign, as you know, is that people, or at least people in Ontario, had to, had to decide, at least in some families' cases, between heating and eating. Well, if they're eating more, then their heat is perfectly fine, and that will actually prove that that little phrase, whether you find a cornball or brilliant, actually worked very well. All right, your thoughts on the throne speech? Not bad. Um, I, I thought that it was good overall. I mean, obviously, this is, as people know, the lieutenant governor of Ontario is the one who gives a throne speech. Mm-hmm. It's actually not um, Ontario Premier Doug Ford. So you don't have necessarily the political hoopla, the, the pomp and circumstance that you sort of expect. It's kind of dry. It was kind of dry, although you have to give at least the PC caucus a little bit of credit, and I know that a lot of traditionalists are going to be irritated at me in saying this if they ever hear it, but I like the fact that they actually applauded certain things that the lieutenant governor, that the lieutenant governor basically said in her speech on behalf of the government like it was the government, quote-unquote, giving the speech. In other words, Mr. Ford actually giving it, even though he doesn't, right. or his finance minister, Vic Fideli, who didn't. And I know that that's obviously against tradition. You're supposed to remain quiet and in your seats when it happened. But I think there was a little bit of a populist element to it, that they were happy, euphoric, that things were changing in Ontario. So they wanted to express their pleasure, although Ms. Dowdswell, the lieutenant governor general, was obviously basically expressing her displeasure by being interrupted on a regular basis. Mm. But I think that sort of mechanism, or at least that sort of presentation, added something to it, even if you didn't necessarily like it. But in terms of the highlights, pretty good. I mean, I think a lot of things that, you know, Doug Ford had discussed before Mm. were right in there, you know, tax relief to different people in Ontario, parents, uh, small business, the the working poor, um, you know, health care funding they announced with 15,000 new long-term care beds over the next five years, reducing gas prices, um, reducing hydro prices, 
uh, getting rid of cap and trade in Ontario, uh, removing that windmill from Prince Edward County that you and I couldn't instantly remember. But mm. that is certainly an issue because it was done during the campaign. Um, and a, a number of other things that overall I thought were actually very good and were part of the promises that Doug Ford made while he was on the campaign trail and while he has been the premier-elect of Ontario. So it just meshes with basically his entire strategy, literally, literally since day one when he declared his candidacy for the Ontario PC leadership. And this is all basically all the chickens coming home to roost, so to speak. And now the trick is everything has been announced the agenda has been laid out. We now know where the PC government is going to go for the next little while. Now they have to produce. And if they can, that's to their benefit. When do they, how long do they keep this summer session going? When do they shut it down and resume in the fall? I don't think you can do this for very long. I, I, I would be shocked if it went more than three weeks. It, it might. It's possible. I guess if, you know, an unusual issue occurs in Ontario, much like this weird thing that's going on right now in the city of Toronto, where mm. I'm from, where... You know, we know that the Toronto police and others were aware that something may have happened, but it's not been disclosed to us exactly what it is, mm. and no one can seem to find out. Those are the types of issues that obviously could keep the legislature in session for a bit longer. But remember, these are the summer months, and people are paying very little attention to politics at this point. Where you have the most impact <clears throat> is when families are no longer on summer vacation or the kids are not in summer camp, right. but your routine is back to normal. Ergo, the fall is where, or the late fall in this case, is where you're going to have, I think, the best impact overall. So look for a three-week session in the summer. A few things will go through. The rest of the, uh, the throne speech will carry over into the fall, and then you'll start seeing things really hammering away. But certainly for the few weeks that it's up and running, Mr. Ford certainly has an agenda in place where he hopes to accomplish many things. Uh, lots of wind in the sails right now. Does he keep this momentum going over the summer? Does he want to? I think you want to. You want to keep the honeymoon as long yeah. as possible, so to speak. Um, uh, you know, the political honeymoon, and you and I have talked about, and I've talked about this with other people, and in fact, many pundits do. Th there's no specified time when a political honeymoon starts and ends. Sometimes it can go on for a couple of years, as we sort of saw with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and then sometimes it just lasts for a few months, which we've seen with some U.S. presidents, for example, in the past. George H.W. Bush would be a classical example of that. So... It really just depends, but I think that during the summer, especially during the barbecue season where you are getting involved in meet and greets with um, uh, campaign supporters, uh, loyal party supporters, uh, leaders, um, some cabinet ministers, and even just some of your backbench MPPs just making a quick appearance here and there, that's the time when you go out to meet and greet with the people and you try to ensure them and try to make sure that they're aware of what your government is actually going to do over the next few weeks, months, and years. So I think you want this momentum to go on as long as possible. You don't want it to stop at any point in time. But to spread it out would actually not be a bad thing because we have this weird thing where it's going to be probably a very short summer session and then back later in the fall you have to ensure that that momentum carries on not just through the government sessions but also the intermittent time as well because you want to make sure that people realize that the ontario pc government according to what they want is for the people working for the people and producing for the people if they can do those three things they've got it made michael tobe has been with us troy media syndicated columnist and contributor to the washington times michael as always thank you for the time much appreciated 
My pleasure. Have a great day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.